I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Liska Jacobs. She is the author of Catalina and the Worst Kind of Want. Her essays and short fiction have appeared in The Literary Hub, The Millions, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and The Rumpus, among other publications. She divides her time between Berlin and Los Angeles, and her latest novel is The Pink Hotel, published by FSG. On the show, we talked about her absolutely stellar setting and setting a novel in a place that exists, epigraphs, log lines, reading aloud, and so much more. Before we bring her on, though, a little reminder. If in the 24 years that Writers on Writing has been bringing authors, agents, and poets to you, if you've gleaned anything from the show during that time and have found that it's helped you with your writing, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. We appreciate every little bit of support, no matter how small. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Now for the show. Liska, I am so happy to talk with you. I read your book and I enjoyed The Pink Hotel so much and would love to hear about the genesis of the novel. How did the book come about? I actually thought of the book a few years ago while I was writing my first novel. Um, it came to me because I had heard a true story that happened during the 1992 <clears throat> LA riots. And it was, it's, it, it kind of sounds like urban legend, but it actually happened. When the riots were happening in the 90s, uh, everyone in Beverly Hills didn't feel very safe in their homes. And the Beverly Hills Hotel there and the Polo Lounge specifically, the restaurant and the hotel, was sort of the, like their neighborhood hangout, kind of like their, I guess, neighborhood bar. <laughs> and um, so they all congregated there one night, uh, sort of safety in numbers. And the restaurant, I think, stayed open all night and they wheeled in TVs so that the guests could watch the riots unfold. Um, and they still served dinner and drinks and whatnot. And I thought that would be a wild setting for a novel. Well, I, I read Catalina. And I took note that you, um, it also takes place in a hotel, largely in a hotel, and the Beverly Hills Hotel is mentioned. (laughs) That is interesting. I love it when they're like books connect, right? Yeah, they kind of speak to each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And pink is an important color in, in Catalina as well. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I first started working with MCD, my publisher, they had when Catalina was coming out, we were talking about covers. They asked, is there any color you don't, that you absolutely do not want on on the cover? And I said, pink, and they all laughed. And then not only has it been on every cover of each of my books, it also ended up being the title of my third novel. So (laughs) I guess I can't really get away from it. Yeah, the cover of the Pink Hotel is fabulous. I I I wanted to talk about that later on, but since you brought it up, I wondered, if you had any say in it, if you saw it before it came out and what you thought. I did. MCD is great. They, they, they are, take a lot of pride in their covers as they should. And they work with the authors um, to quite an extent. I saw this pretty early on, um, three different versions of it. 
And I was blown away as soon as I, my editor and I were kind of gleefully screaming <laughs> over our excitement. Um, it was just exactly what I had imagined. I, I was surprised they used that iconic font um, mm-hmm. because, you know, the hotel is based on the Beverly, in, in my book, the Pink Hotel is based on the Beverly Hills Hotel, but it's not, you know, I think legally I have to say it's not that hotel. <laughs> but um, I, so I was surprised when they just came out and did the same font. I thought, oh, we're really flirting with disaster here. I'm, I'm kind of, I love it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's fabulous. And, and, you know, I was wondering too, how careful did you have to be in basing the pink hotel in a real place? You know, I, what I've, I've been told, and I I think this is, this is true for, for fiction is, is as long as you're not basing anything on anything you've experienced or saw firsthand or real actual people, you're, you're fine. I, I stayed at the hotel for a week for research and everyone there was lovely. I, there, none of the characters in the book are based off anyone I met there or anything I saw that, although to be you know honest, everything that happens in the book are stories I've heard rich people do, or I, through my research, um, I read about, you know, wild dog parties and whatnot. I think the the big party at the end of the book, the black and white ball is based off the Vanderbilt uh, masquerade in the end of the 19th century. Uh-huh. So everything's sort of it's although it's not stuff I witnessed when I stayed at the hotel, it is factual. Well, I was going to say inspired. that. Yeah, that doggy luncheon midway through the book was <laughs> hilarious. And so, yeah, I imagine, you know, it happened, right? Oh, well, so I, I thought I had made some things I, I would think I would make things up because, you know, I was trying to be, I, I don't know, kind of pushing that how outrageous things can be when you have an absurd amount of money and then I would find out later that things like that had actually happened I think I was just in the south of France and I was at a fabulously wealthy woman's um, villa turned museum and one of the tour guides mentioned that she was famous for her pets and she had thrown this extravagant wedding for two dogs where Mm -hmm. these embossed invitations (laughs) went out and you know hundreds of counts and princes and you know politicians came with their pets because that's you know their pets were invited and I just thought well I why didn't I do a dog wedding <laughs> that's, so, that's hilarious so I, I you know I guess truth is stranger than fiction well well I you know that made me think of something else which is that crying scenes or funny scenes I think are really difficult to write and because you want I think you want the reader crying or laughing. And often in these scenes in novels, I don't cry or laugh. And I think, is anybody crying or laughing? I laughed <laughs> at that scene and I wondered about writing that scene and, and how how it was because writing humor is all about the pacing and, and just you mm-hmm. know getting the beats maybe more so than you know just straight fiction, I suppose, because yeah. you, want it, you want the reader to laugh or cry. So exactly. Yeah. Talk about writing that scene or writing scenes like that, where, you know, you definitely want to evoke um, an emotion and you need to, to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the characters have to feel real. That was one of the things I was important to me when I started writing all the outrageous scenes was, you know, the, the situations these characters find themselves in the reader and I both have to understand that the circumstances that led up to this, why somebody might go along with a dog party or a creme anglaise wrestling tournament 
um, and that they're under the considerable pressure or societal influences or, or, or whatnot. So that's important, right? Having this sort of human understanding of this, but this is my first book in third person. And I found writing in third person gave me this certain distance where the characters were no longer very self-aware and I could play with that and kind of make it humorous, right? No one in at that dog party, none of the guests, really realize how absurd it is um and that's you know you can play with that you can make it funny yeah yeah that's great so i I wanted to ask you about the third person present tense and um how that was and why you chose that Mm. when i was started so when i had thought about the the idea what what sort of was my nugget and then i was trying to figure out how do i get in like what's my way into this novel i couldn't write it from just the perspective of a rich, entitled, wealthy guest. I couldn't write it from just um, an employee's point of view. I needed somebody that could get me in and sort of could be an interloper in both worlds, which is sort of how Kit and Keith came about, my newlywed couple. But then I I started thinking, okay, well, I don't want to just be in, in both of their heads. And I started playing around with kaleidoscope, sort of jumping in and out. And I thought, I felt with the sort of pacing of a fire approaching and that sense of, I mean, you're, you're Californian and so am I, whenever there's a fire, there's a sort of heightened forensic sort of manic energy. Um, And I, I, I felt that the kaleidoscope third person present tense narrator, that's such a mouthful (laughs) sort of (laughs) could really play with that um, feeling of claustrophobia yeah and and the way you slide in and out of point of view really worked sometimes it's oh, thank you ex- extremely clunky you know when when writers do that you're not really sure where you are and who are you with now and it was always always pretty clear and always made sense um why you were thank doing you. that yeah, yeah it was I, definitely different from my first two novels because those were in first person and that kind of makes you take on a different narrative voice and they're always with you in your head and but this was many people and many voices in my head. I started kind of feeling like a crazy person, <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. Which do you prefer? Oh, that's an excellent question. I'm I mean, will you go back writing... to first person with your next book or what do you think? I think it really depends on the story. I think, you, you know, there's a right way in for every novel or every short story or essay, and you just kind of have to find it. And hopefully it comes naturally. There's a lot of starts and stops, you know, a lot of errors along the way. Um, I tried writing this book from Mimi Calvert, the older woman who lives at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I tried to write it from her perspective at one point. I wrote it from Coco's, um, one of the employees there, until I finally realized, oh, it's going to be everybody's. Hmm. I'd love to hear you read from the Pink Hotel. Would you do that? Oh, yes, I will. Okay. If you had been on this morning's flight from Sacramento to Los Angeles, you'd have seen a pair of newlyweds on the commencement of their honeymoon. You would have overheard how proudly he said my wife, all through the short flight. Her voice muffled and timid, speaking into his shoulder, my husband. After disembarking, oblivious to the heat and absurd humidity, they hovered at the arrival gate, then in front of the Terminal 6 Starbucks, where flies swirled in sluggish arcs. They're at the luggage carousel now, standing hand in hand, her pretty sundress wrinkled from sitting. They're good looking, you'd think to yourself. The full bloom of their youth like a flash bang to your senses. 
But then a black town car pulls up just outside the sliding exit doors and they're whisked off. Slowly, slowly, the newlyweds are shuttled along a jammed freeway, heading away from the busy beaches where the sea is warm and the sand scorches bare feet. They won't get to see the indigenous folks peddling mango and pineapple spears or the sheriff's department patrolling them from atop their ATVs. Just as the surfers out in the water won't ever know the dappled pattern of sunlight along Wilshire Boulevard at this hour. They're passing the university now. It's students squabbling over politics and fair trade coffee beans. It's faculty checking their bank accounts, trying to figure out the math. How much do I make an hour? Meanwhile, the Savon turned Rite Aid turned Walgreens is empty once more. Dust on a for lease sign is a very particular kind of sadness. The ficus trees have become more numerous. They're gigantic bulbous heads sprouting up and out across the street. Deeper and deeper, the town car travels into Beverly Hills into these landscaped expansive grounds, verdant and shaded and very green. This is where the sleek animals live. Everything expensive and pristine. The house is not like anything this couple has ever seen before. Different from mobile homes, the one or two bedroom apartments, the suburban neighborhoods. And there, springing up from this dense tropical jungle is a stucco Mediterranean palace. Green and white candy striped awnings fluttering in the hot dry wind facade as pink and angry as a sunburn. This is the town car's destination. This is the pink hotel. Mm, thank you so much. You know, oh, you're I, welcome. Yeah, I wanted to say that as I was reading, um, well, first of all, the setting is always fabulous. Um, your fiction, it, it almost feels as if you're looking through a close-up lens, describing mm. or telling a scene. Will you talk about that? Because throughout this novel, the 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 setting is 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 sensory. It's visceral. It's it's lush, and yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, have you always uh, have you always had this alacrity with setting? I've always I've always been very into you know having the right setting for these characters. I I think when I'm starting to come up with a novel, I think of the the sort of situation, the general situation right? Wildfires, uh, people stuck in a hotel. Then it comes, I have to figure out the characters, right? What's going on with each of them, sort of setting up like my dominoes. And then the setting has to come into play that forces those dominoes to start falling. So the setting's always been very important, but this book in particular, I wanted it, the setting to be so opulent and so lush and decadent, almost in a claustrophobic, slightly, you know, like the close the sort of line between something that is ripe and something that's spoiled, right? Just on the precipice of being disgusting because it's so opulent and so decadent because it kind of mirrors, I wanted it to mirror the, the amount of wealth that, that you see pass through those hotel doors. Mm. Yeah, well, you did that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was fun to write. Although I, you know, when I started writing this book, it was, a, you know, a few years ago now, and when I was, I was on my final deadline to turn it in. And this was the um, summer, it was spring of 2020. So we had just gone into lockdown and it started to feel like the book was coming true. There was the Black Lives Matter movement. There was wildfires. Um, there was COVID. I had written, you know, people having face masks, but not to the extent that we've all come to understand what face masks, right. you know, in a, in, a, in a large setting means. Um, so experiencing a 
a lot of that firsthand. I mean, I had written a scene about um, the National Guard rolling down Rodeo Drive, and then that happened. And I thought, well, I have to push this further um, than reality. And, and it started, I started feeling like a witch at one point. <laughs> my, my husband was like, what if your next book is we win the lotto. <laughs> but um, so it, it I, I, I did have to kind of pause writing the book and experience um, these experiences sort of made me sort of double back and, and flesh out parts of the novel that I felt hadn't really been visited properly. So you had the characters and you had the situation, you had the setting. Did, did you know where you were going? Do you plot? Do you need some sort of synopsis or outline that you either follow loosely or you, you know, follow closely? I used to not be a plotter, I think, and I'm still not really a plotter. When I, I wrote Catalina, it was my, um, my sort of uh, dissertation, my MFA is what it culminated with the Catalina and then I sold it and it became my first novel. But then I, um, it was part of a two book deal. And in order to write the second book, I had to get approval from MCD. So I had to write uh, out what the book was going to be about. And I kicked and screamed and was so mad about that because I kind of liked the idea of writing to figure out and writing to discover. And although the book is doesn't completely follow that first, the worst kind of want doesn't completely follow that initial proposal, it still kind of helped me flesh out general ideas. And so when I approached the Pink Hotel, I did something similar. I wrote just like a maybe three page document, just kind of doing like, and then, and then, and then this happens and then this happens, just so I could sort of I don't know, throw some paint against the wall and sort of get a general idea. And it, and I don't really stick to that. Um, I, I think I, I like to think of as if you're going to, travel across country, maybe you map it out, but once you're on the road, you can stop whenever you want, right? You can change directions. And so that's kind of how I view plotting at this point. So you found it useful in terms of not wasting time because you can yes. waste so much time just kind of oh my God. feeling your way, right? Well, and also one of the things I learned about my first novel too, is I, I think it's really hard when you're starting out and for me, I, I love setting and I love character driven stories and I, I love getting the words right on the page. And that can kind of, you can kind of lose your way at some point. I think one of my favorite things, Todd Goldberg, he's the, one of my teachers at um, UCR said to me when he was reading a version of Catalina, Liska, this is great, but something needs to happen. <laughs> 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 and that kind of is, I think, where the plotting comes into, maybe not so much plotting, but the sort of and then, and then, so you can get a, you can get a sense of, right, there's the characters, there's the setting, there's the, you know, the written word, but where our job is also writing a story. Yeah. Do you, do you also feel that you have to come up with a log line? you know, reduce, reduce the, the book down to a sentence or two? Sometimes, yeah. I, I used to have, I had the Catalina probably as scarred in my brain forever because that was the one that when I was going out with for agents, you know, you have to have to log line in, in the body of the email pretty much. Um, but yeah, kind of, I, I think it, it's kind of helpful for you to have, um, I guess at this point, I kind of use not just a log line, but the epigraphs at the beginning of this book. I chose those first before I started writing because I wanted there to be 
especially with this book with so many voices and so many ways it could go, I wanted there to be sort of like a, a guiding light. Um, and funny, I mean, they're hilarious epigraphs. One of them is quite, you know, it's Clarice Lispector. It's a, a lovely one. And the other one's Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> oh, read them, read them. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. They're, I love they're epigraphs. My... I love epigraphs. <laughs> you know, they, they do kind of point your way. You, you know, right? yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the first one is who hasn't asked himself, am I a monster or is this what it means to be human? And that's Clarice Lispector. And the other one is I'd rather smoke crack than eat cheese from a tin. And that's one of Paltrow. <laughs> yeah. I keep yeah. hoping she's going to make this a book club pick, but I'm kind of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. You never know. You never know. You never know. Right. I mean, we have to laugh at ourselves. <laughs> and how often do LA novels come out that are good? Mm. You know, I mean, really, I mean, I yeah, love, I, mean, I love LA as a setting in, in novels and I, I just don't see it that often, at least books I want to read. Yeah. And, and you know, being away from Los Angeles now, um, LA sort of, ex- when I tell people, I live in Berlin now, when I tell people that I'm from Los Angeles, it exists in, in this sort of fantastical way for people. They've never been there, but they have an idea of what it is and what it means to them. And I guess we all feel that way about Los Angeles, but it, it just sort of is making me see it from a different lens, which I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. So are you living in Berlin or are you there to write yes, about? Yes, I'm living here. Yeah, we've moved here. Yes, it's already oh. winter. <laughs> wow. So what, what, uh, and I don't know, what made you move? Oh, my husband got a job here. So we just oh, thought, why not? Let's, let's do it. Um, and I thought it would be I'm not sure what this fourth book is going to be about yet, but I thought maybe, you know, a change of scenery would sort of inspire me. Well, you do, you do like to stay or live places that you're going to write about, right? I mean, I think you said you talked with somebody, maybe it was Tony Duchesne about that. I heard that interview. Yes. Yeah. My editor likes to joke that I'm a method writer. Um, which is, you know, it's great when your first book takes place in Catalina and and I got to, you know, I lived in Los Angeles so I could go to Catalina Island. And I swore that if I ever got a book advance, I would set my second book somewhere much more exotic, which is why the second book takes place in Italy. Um, And then the third book I set at the Beverly Hills Hotel or a version of it. And so I went and stayed there. It's, you know, so I, I like to have my books set somewhere that I want to, not just somewhere I can go and research, but when I'm not there and I'm thinking about it constantly, I'm, I'm there in my imagination. Right. I think that's super important. So that's kind of where that comes from. Yeah. yeah. Um, so back to the characters, uh, Keith and Kit, the main characters of the pink hotel, so how much did you know about them? Do you do character bios or do you, I don't know, walk with them, spend the day with, with uh, mm-hmm. these imaginary people and, and see what they would do and who they are and what they buy in, in the store, order at the restaurant? How do you get to know them? Uh, the first thing I do is I cast them in a mood board and, and not like Pinterest. Or it's just a mood board that's behind my desk and I will... And, and when I say cast, I don't mean actors or actresses, because I find if I did Emma Stone, I have an idea of what kind of character she would play. I, I take um, 
pictures out of fashion magazines or the cheap ones at thrifties that have different haircut styles. And I, and I, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I, 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 I catch them and, and then I can kind of project my ideas of who these people are and rearrange the hierarchy of how they interact with other characters too. And then with Kit and Keith, the more I wrote about them together and bounced them off each other, the more I learned about how each of them were. And I think that's true about relationships in general, especially when there's a seismic shift like marriage where it kind of changes their identity in a, in a way that they weren't expecting. Um, and Kit's especially since her last name changes. So, and, and I think because I can then get an idea of, because of how she's reacting to that, more and more of her becomes, I don't know, sort of reveals itself to me. That makes it sound like it's magical or something. It just takes a lot of, a lot of notebooks and a lot of me scribbling out in second person almost, I think. I'll be like, you do this, you do that. You feel this way. Um, to try to find, get to know them. And will that be something you do throughout the writing of the book or just at the beginning? Throughout the book, especially if I'm writing a scene and I'm having a hard time figuring out why it's not working or what I think this person should be doing. This is another sort of example. If I have a plot point or a scene that I, I want in the book and I initially thought it was going to be here, a puzzle piece, but it's not working. Um, I will go, I'll pause and I'll open up a notebook. And part of it is pen to paper, I find really soothing and you can work out things in a messy way versus doing it on the computer. Um, and I'll sort of revisit it, her or Keith from their perspective. Like, well, what would what do you want to do during this part? And sometimes that means I have to scrap the scene or change the scene and um, kill your darlings kind of thing. But that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of pen and paper, um, first drafts, do you write longhand? Does it go directly on the computer? So after I fill up lots of notebooks, getting to know the characters, and once I find it all, and it, this is always like the part where you're just think you're never going to find your way in, you have your characters, you have your setting, you have your general idea, but you can't seem to find the right there's always a moment where the first sentence comes to you and you think, and you're going to go, aha, that's the voice I'm going to write this in. And this is the first sentence of this, this novel. Sometimes you end up writing a chapter before that, but at least you find that that's the voice. Um, so I forgot what you asked me. Cause I've started going off about that. Oh, I started oh. thinking about my fourth book. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you go, if you do longhand uh, with your first draft, um, or, yeah. Yeah. So once, once I find that first sentence, I go straight to a computer and I start writing from that perspective that with that sentence as sort of my, here we go. This is the beginning. Let's see what we can do here. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say um, the first couple of pages of the pink hotel are so visceral and, and pretty perfect, I think. And, and I wondered, you know, this is your third novel. So I imagine I imagine it's not as important getting those first pages or first chapter as perfect as you might with a debut, or is it? I mean, are you working that first page, that first chapter, getting it as tight as you can, or or at what point do you go, you know, that's good enough? (laughs) Oh, never. I mean, when I was, uh, I was, I think my first event for the Pink Hotel, I was going through, you know, sections that I wanted to read. 
And I was reading it out loud and I thought, I don't like this word. And I crossed out. So I think you're always kind of editing Mm -hmm. um, and thinking you can do more. But I think at some point when I I realized I've done it is, is my first readers, um, which are, you know, a couple of friends of mine when they have like a a sort of emotional reaction to it. And the one that I've intended to sort of have. Um, And that's when I think, okay, this is, this is, this is at least good enough to show my editor. And then after my editor and I go through it and whatnot, um, I guess there's just a moment where you think, yeah, I've got the, I've got the words right. I mean, I, there was, I was changing the first sentence of this book right up until it went to press actually, because <laughs> it just wasn't right yet to me. There's something about, I think the melody or something when mm-hmm. you read it out loud and, and you just want to catch, you want to capture that. Do you read, as you write, do you read aloud? I mean, is that something you'll do? You'll finish a scene and read it and see how it sounds? Or do you just wait until sometime later? Sometimes. um, One of the things I've started to do, which might end in divorce, is I have my husband read it out loud to me while I sit and take notes. (laughs) Uh (laughs) But he obliges me so far. Um, And I find it helpful. Part of it is, I think, when you're writing something, you get used to the your screen when you're looking at it. So if it's helpful if you just open it on a different, on your iPad or something, and it's sort of, you have a different vantage point and you can read it differently. But I find if you hear it in somebody else's voice, your own writing, you're a- I'm able to sort of pick out problems that I want to, you know, sort of fix. Um, if it's just me writing it as I'm writing it and the scene's not done, uh, sometimes I will, once I finish a paragraph, I'll read it out loud to myself. Yeah, I've had the computer read to me um, on occasion. Oh. And that can be kind of useful, you know, because it's that monotone kind of yeah. nothing voice that's just going along, not not fancying anything up. And, and Oh, uh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. If my husband says no, I'll just be like, that's fine. The computer, <laughs> the computer can do your job. <laughs> um well, you also mentioned um, readers, and I was curious at what point during the draft um, or parts of the draft do you, you give to readers? Well, the, and- my husband's the first one to read the first, the first when I'm done with the scene. I'll have him read it. And it's sort of at this, we've been together for 20 years. So it's almost like just having a different version of me read it. Um, and I can see it through his eyes very quickly. He's also, he has no poker face. So I'm able to see <laughs> if it's not working immediately. And I'm like, okay, stop reading. I'll go back. Um, and then once I have a draft done, I'll, I'll, I'll give that draft to a couple friends of mine and see what they think. Um, if I have something, if there's something there. And I, you know, one of my first readers is Mark Haskell Smith, at least for this book and the one before this too. Um, he, if he says that there's good bones, you know, of course, I think every writer, they want to nail it on their first draft and you can struggle and you struggle. So at first you're a little sad that it's not ready to print, <laughs> but, but just knowing that the bones are there and you're like, okay, now I just have to, you know, it takes time. So how many drafts did the Pink Hotel go through and, and what do you consider a draft? Mm. You know, so it's I, not yeah. just tweaking or is it? Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I know what you mean. I think what I consider a draft is when I've worked beginning to end all the way through. Um, I had to do this one a little differently because it's my longest book and there were so many characters. The thing about starting from the beginning to the end every single time is by the time you get to the end, you're tired. 
Mm-hmm. So I started I, for this, I think one of my drafts, although I, I, I read it backwards kind of just, to, just so I would have my energy, you know, going into it from the, from the end to the beginning. But what I consider a draft is um, after I've done that. So if I've written the whole draft, you know, gotten the beginning, the middle, the end down, that's considered my first draft. Um, and usually I'll print it out and put it in a drawer and I won't look at it while I have beta readers read it and give me their feedback. And then I'll take that out and I'll read it with a pen. And I usually hate it. I usually want to burn it, <laughs> but um, I stick with it. And then after I'm done with that, I apply those notes to a second draft and I go through that, print out that one when I'm done with that one. And I think with this one, I probably did that six or seven times. Hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. It's the kind of care you want to take, right? I mean, even if you hate yeah. it, it's, it's, what it's part of the job. <laughs> well, and I think it's the, I think it's the best part of the whole, this whole, I don't want to know if we call it an industry or what, but this thing that we do, I think it's, I think it's the best part of, like you said, the job is getting the characters, getting the setting. It kind of, I kind of go into this weird fugue state when I write, where when I was writing the worst kind of want, I just destroyed my body from trying to get that book out as fast as possible and just wanting to, you know, do it under deadline and and make my editor and my publisher proud. I mean, I was wearing like wrist guards and compression socks. And at one point, (laughs) at one point, the the sort of liquid between my knuckles got like inflamed and I had to get steroid shots in them. And then I just went back and finished writing. And I swore I would never do that again. I was like, okay, I I finished. And I was like, why did I go through all that? But I just kind of go into this, I have to finish it. And when I was writing this book, I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. And I didn't, my body didn't break down on me. But while I was writing it, when it seemed like the world was reflecting what I was writing, I thought I needed, I need perspective. I can't live this and write it. So I, we sold all of our belongings. I don't know how I talked my husband into this. And I accepted a writing residency in Chapala, Mexico for six months, I think. Went there and, be, and I didn't finish the book yet. I, I went from there to Colombia. We were in Medellin while I was, and I finished this book and I'll never forget. I finished the last sentence and I hit command save. And I was like, I did it. This book's done. And then I looked around and I was like, wait, we're in Colombia. <laughs> what are we doing here? So I guess I just kind of go into this, no matter what, I like the book, the writing part of this is, is just all, all consuming. And it's kind of my favorite part because we're allowed to do that, right? We're the writers, we're the novelists, we're short story writers. And our job is to make these worlds. And so I have a lot of fun doing it. Um, the rest of it is the job, right? Going out, selling the books and it's fun, right. but it's nowhere near as fun as creating the characters and getting the words on the page. Right, right, right. So it sounds like you don't have to get a, a paragraph, um, a page, a scene, a, a chapter perfect before you move on. You, The point with the first draft is getting a first draft. Yes. Although that's I will, it. I have to, yeah, I would say that's right. Except at the time, I do think I'm getting the words right. And I do think I'm getting them perfect. It's only through revision. Am I greatly displaced <laughs> because you're getting the scenes right, but you don't see quite yet how the whole book's going to go. And characters always change and they surprise you. And, you know, I, I actually wrote the last chapter of this book came very early on and I thought it was going to be somewhere in the middle of the book. And I realized 
nope, this is how the book's going to end. So all that stuff, all that discovery kind of shifts the book constantly. And you're constantly, that's sort of where the drafts come in. It's revision and discovery. Do you leave much out? Did you leave much out with uh, the Pink Hotel? Are there scenes on your computer that maybe you'll use somewhere else or or that you just threw out? You know, I have, I think every draft, I would have a different document of scraps. And that's because I can't bear to actually kill my darlings. I just mm-hmm. copy them, you know, or cut them and paste them into a different document. So yeah, there's there's definitely scenes where, you know, you start writing in one direction and you realize this is fun, but this isn't this book. And so you just cut it and put it somewhere else. Do you go back to those parts ever? You know, I, I've just read somebody, uh, another writer called it, um, their their darling graveyard (laughs) and I thought yeah that's about right so maybe I don't really visit them but it makes me feel very good that I still could that they're there yeah yeah that they're there that they're there do you read fiction while you write no I so before once I have the idea part of like my pre-writing before I start getting anything down is I think of different books that I kind of want the book to emulate I guess or I'm inspired by for this one I sort of pitched it to my editor as um Ballard's High Rise I don't know if you know that novel and um the children's book Eloise Uh (laughs) High Rise was also turned into a movie starring um oh I can't remember the guy that plays Loki but it's it's a kind of a wild novel um it starts with um, one of the guys who's living in this beautiful high rise eating a dog. So, you know, everything has gone, gone to shit. So I, I, that was kind of, I, you know, I revisited a couple books of, about class and, and whatnot, cause that's, was my intention. And then when I start writing, I, I don't read any books. I, people who read drafts of my novels will say, Oh, I think you'll like this book. And I keep a running list. Mm-hmm. Uh, also shows, um, while I was writing this, the white Lotus came out. So I was like, don't watch this until you're done. Because one, you don't want to be influenced and, and two, you don't want to get sort of sad that maybe your book has already been done. I think. <laughs> so so um, all that goes into a different. Um, and once I, I finish a draft, um, I will take a break in between drafts and sort of try to get my own voice, my narrative voice out of my head by reading books that people have recommended. Hmm. So Ballard, High Rise and Eloise would that have been used as a comp as comps yeah yeah i think they were definitely used as comps um i'm trying to remember some of the other ones but they're not coming to me right now um it's such an important aspect i think it well for debut authors especially but you know in that query letter they want the comps and they say you know something that's been out for the last you know maybe two years and you go but my book is like something that was out 20 years ago or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that it is important to find as long as it's, it's sort of a classic, right. I think that's important. Um, <clears throat> this book, because the white Lotus came out, um, I think a year um, before my book published, I, mean, I can't remember. It was definitely one that they used as a comp. Um, so it's not always books too, right. which I find surprising, but you know, that's, part of the the business. Mm -hmm. So who are your influences? Who are your influences coming up? And, you know, maybe 
prior to your MFA, during your MFA, um, just as you were finding your voice as a writer? Mm. You know, I always, I'm a twin and my twin sister uh, was mm. a, the voracious reader in the family. And so I never really thought I was as much of a reader as she was. And it wasn't until I was an undergraduate at UCLA when I discovered Jean Reese mm-hmm. that I, I saw a different way of writing where it was raw and honest and the characters weren't always likable. And I thought, and it really spoke to me. So uh, that was the first time where I thought, oh, there's different ways of doing this and there might be room for me out there. So I think mm-hmm. it's really important to find somebody, a book that does that for, for a person. And then while I was in my MFA program, Deborah Levy became a huge influence. Um, I love all of her work. Um, I'm trying to think of some others. Oh, gosh. Uh, Toni Morrison, of course. She's lovely. Margaret Duras. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a big one. Um, Elena Ferrante. I feel like I'm saying all the obvious ones. <laughs> but these were ones that, you know, when I read Days of Abandonment, that was like what blew my mind. I was like, this is the kind of tension sustained tension. I think the middle of that book is almost one scene that's 60 pages long and you're holding your breath the whole time. And that's, I mean, that's amazing. Um, so I was, I, I, I really liked, I really liked that book. Um, I think those are probably the top ones for me. Mm. You know, I wanted to ask you about um, the way the Pink Hotel is broken into chapters um, because I think the headings are Days, days, right? yeah, yeah. It takes place over a week, and then within within those sections, there are parts that mm-hmm. those chapters are broken down even more at times. Talk about that. Coming up with that structure. Yeah, when I so when I was doing present tense, and one of the reasons why I love present tense is there's a sense of immediacy to it, and it kind of keeps me on my toes writing it, but also keeps me honest. I can't cut away for too long. I can't withhold information from the reader. Um, So when I was writing these days and I wanted to be able to jump around, not just in people's um, heads, but also moments. And it started feeling like, um, it started feeling like a screenplay at one point. It started feeling like a motion picture. And I've come from a motion picture background. My family is um, been in the business for a while. And so I, I really liked that. I thought, oh, this is fun to play with because um, I mean, what's more opulent and decadent than film, right? <laughs> so so I, I wanted to play with sort of playing, I guess, scenes, creating actual, like a, scene, a visual scene, but on the page. Um, that's kind of where that that came from. And, and one of the things I, I felt was, I don't know if you noticed, but I do address the reader a couple, quite a few times actually in the book. And that came about because this book came from a place where I, I, the world felt like it was falling apart. And I thought, well, we're all complicit in it. And I think part of that is because when we look at Twitter or when we are just scrolling on the internet, it's so easy to just watch it happen on screen and think that's not me because my day-to-day life is fine. Um, I'm guilty of this too. So I really wanted it to feel like the reader is scrolling through Mm. disaster, I guess, Mm -hmm. and are complicit because part of it too, I think I know this because, you know, I'm from Southern California is whenever there's a fire, yes, it's terrifying, 
And um, if you live anywhere near them, it's it can be you know very scary and dangerous. But it's also weirdly exciting. I think Los Angeles is a place where earthquakes happen and there's always sort of this disaster looming. And it kind of is, I, I don't know, we, we thrive on it a little bit, that chaos. Um, we, I, there was a moment when all the, I don't know if you remember this, early on in COVID where everybody was going to the supermarket and buying out all the paper towels and cleaning oh, products and oh, yeah. and the canned goods and you go in and, and Trader Joe's was just it looked like not only had it been pilfered there the, it was scary seeing empty shelves but then the next week everything was filled again and you were relieved but also I don't know strangely disappointed in a in a weird way because now the calamity is over or something I don't know I find I find people to be complex and, and our desire to see things be destroyed, but also our need to feel safe. Hmm. Will you come back? Do you think? I mean, will you move back? Oh my God. I miss it so much. Just reading the beginning of this, I, I was like, I miss California. <laughs> I mean, I'm a California, I'm, I'm a California girl. I, I've never felt it more than moving to Berlin in winter. That's definitely <laughs> for, for very true. Um, I didn't even have the right clothes. Uh, but yes, I, it's it's a very special place. I love Los Angeles. Mm. Well, you know, you mentioned you mentioned uh, the internet in relation to these chapters, these sections, and I'm so I'm curious also how social media has influenced your writing, or has it? I mean, are you thinking, you know, what's you know, how does this connect with, you know, how does this connect with how people are spending their time and how do I need to, you know, grab, grab a reader's focus. So they read this instead of, mm. you know, go online or I don't know. I mean, just occurred to no, me. I, talking. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's, um, I did do a lot of <clears throat> research for this book and part of it was following a lot of different very wealthy people on Instagram, but also fashion houses. Um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, just very different brands. And I was part of that was because in the pandemic, it happened around the New York Fashion Week, and so they canceled their the fashion show. And one of the designers was very upset, and so he ended up throwing it in his backyard. And it was the first time I saw models not just to have these beautiful designer dresses, but also matching face masks. Mm. And it looked so odd. And mm. then it quickly became normal for people to have, I don't know, fancy face masks for a little bit. That was a little, little bizarre to think of now. But so I find, I find the internet and social media to be a strange place because it's not real, but it is, I guess. Mm -hmm. because it can influence us so quickly and, and normalize things that I used to, I would think used to take longer for us to feel like that was every day. I mean, the Ukraine war, for instance, that's been going on for months. And it was for a long time when I would go onto Twitter, there was an entire heading dedicated to just that. And very within, I don't know, four or five weeks, it kind of went away. And it, so there's this it's a, it's a weird way that if you just focused on social media, it's, a, it's kind of scary. I'm not sure you would have such a small window to the world. And that kind of frightens me a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I 
teach a story class at Chapman um, currently. And last night, one of my students was talking about the internet. And he's like, you know, he's 18. And he says, mm-hmm. you know, we're the first, we're the first generation that is um, an internet culture. And I thought <laughs> that was really kind of interesting and scary. You know, it's like, it, well, they, yeah, yeah. They grew up with it. Right. I mean, it was there when they were born. Yeah. I've, I've, I remember when people first started posting pictures of their newborns and, and this was several years ago on like on Facebook and I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is going to be different for that, that generation because their entire life since birth, like the birthing room, they're still, right. <laughs> they're still there, <laughs> um, is, is part of the system now, right? Like it's, it's out there. Um, so I, I think there's a, the social media stuff like that, Instagram where I mean, TikTok, there's this, this idea of a brand and a personal brand that a generation is going to have to contend with because it's not who you are, but it is who you, your persona. And I, I think that's a very complex thing to put on youth, right? I feel really bad for and anyone with teenage daughters or teenage, any teenagers, I guess, because I can't imagine having that kind of pressure always being on. Oh, crazy. Yeah. And also just the day to day where, you know, in, in my neighborhood, there's a lot of uh, babies and a lot of, a lot mm. of parents pushing strollers and, um, you know, they're staring into their phones as they're pushing the stroller. And I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> the baby's I mean, in front of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you have life right there. And mm-hmm. so, you know, what's going to happen here? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, and I guess that's kind of, one of the things I was, I was reacting to in the book was this feeling of disconnect um, and how quickly that can make things spiral out of control because, and, and now more than ever, reality feels so surreal, I think to us, that it's very easy to pick up the, you know, the phone in our hands, think that we're kind of zoning out for a minute, but it's contributing to even more disconnect, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I know I was, I was, you know, suggesting to my students that, um, they use paper. They're like, well, can I do my journal on my computer? (laughs) Because they have part of their grade as this inspiration journal. And I, and they're like, well, can I do the, use the laptop? And I said, I really think you should use paper because, you know, technology changes and you'll always have this notebook (laughs) and they're looking at me like, what? Yeah. And there's something really like I, you know, this is why I still have so many notebooks around is, is because there's just something about putting pen to paper that helps you work out problems a little quicker, I think. Um, at least for me, it makes me feel like I have more control over it too. It's the reason why I print out drafts so that I can kind of feel like a novel is chaos, right? It's just like managed chaos. So anything you can do to make it feel more manageable, I think is helpful to the writer. Um, and writing on paper is one of those things for me. <laughs> I can't imagine not having that. I think I would go crazy. <laughs> I know. And how often do we print notes from the computer? I mean, we, we might use them in our, whatever we're working on, but are you going to print out a journal? Probably not, or print out notes. I don't know. Yeah, and it's so sad to have them get lost or something yeah, like that too. I mean, lost. I'll never forget writing Catalina, um, 
it was before I, I had Dropbox on my computer, which I don't know if, if you use it, but it just constantly is saving it to a cloud. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just working at UCLA on it in the library. And I went to hit command um, save S, right? Command S. But I hit command A, command all, highlighted it, and then hit space bar. Uh-huh. And yeah. it just was gone. And I... I, for some reason, panicked and then hit command save. <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I imagined walking into, into the 405 traffic. I was like, no, that's it. I'm done. I, that was an entire book that I finished writing. And it took days for me to find an old draft that I could work from and create it again. But, oh my God, it was yeah. so scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is scary. Or your computer crashes and you forgot to back up. And uh. yeah, so you, I, I need to have that the pen and paper. I mean, of course, I don't have an entire book written by hand on on in a notebook. I I can't imagine doing that either. But um, I do like to have them around me. It just makes me feel like there's a analog version. I guess maybe this is making is this dating us? <laughs> Should we be talking about TikTok? I love TikTok. I'm on it all the time. <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, what about TikTok influencers? I mean, do you, you know, it seems like getting your book to those readers can be tricky, right? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I've learned, this is my third time around in a short period of time. um, I think Catalina came out in 2017. So yeah, it hasn't been that long. And you'd think at this point I'd be used to it. um, The sort of roller coaster of publishing a novel. someone had told me early on, a mentor said that, you know, don't get too excited about publication because I think before your debut, you have all these beautiful ideas of what it's going to be like. And this person said to me, it's like a roller coaster. You're going up and up, up the hill, the first hill. And you get, you're like, oh my God, this is going to be great. And then it stops and you take the stairs down. (laughs) 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 And I thought, no, you're, you're just, you're old and cynical and it won't be like that for me. And, and it, it is, it doesn't matter how much success you have. It's still business. It's still capitalism. It's still a machine. And the biggest reason why it's so, I think, um, not disappointing, but different, a different feeling than you anticipate is because you have no control. You've spent so much time with the book, which you have complete control over. Right. And then all of a sudden you put it out there in a machine, you know, it goes out into the machine and, and it's gone. It's, I imagine it's like having a baby. And as soon as, as it's out of you, it goes off to college and you're like, <laughs> bye. I hope the world's kind to you, you know, <laughs> and you have zero control. Right. So it's, it's um, all that, the, can you get the book to TikTok influencers? Uh, it's, I mean, I'm sure my publisher has tries. I'm sure p- there's, people I just don't have it's not my it's not in my wheelhouse or my control to 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 do so I just have to practice okay if it's gonna if it's gonna find those readers I hope they like it if not you know that's okay too I, my my job was creating the book yeah yeah that's great because it you know getting it to you know sometimes it's just like a lot of luck and um mm. you know yes it is luck. It, and I, and it's not, it's luck. And it's also, you know, there's, it's a business. I think the publishing industry works years in advance too. So a lot of the times they have an idea of what your book's going to do. 
mm-hmm. right after you file it. And that usually there's a year between filing it and it coming out. And so it, your book's destiny is a little bit, I, I guess, figured out before it even hits mm-hmm. the market. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's all luck. Right, right. Well, we are at the end of our time. And I wonder if you if there's anything else we haven't covered or any advice you have for novelists who are, um, mm. you know, working on a first draft or working on a final draft or just trying to yeah. keep going. So one of the things when I was writing this book, I wanted to write a book that was had a happy ending. I know that's laughable, <laughs> but, but in my mind it, it does because, and this, this will come back to the idea of my advice for young writers when they're finishing a book is, is my intention was a book with a happy ending. And I wanted it to sort of be an examination of love during chaos. And that was, you know, I dedicated the book to my husband. And it was because in the middle of that spring when everything was falling apart, you know, a lot of writers I know were like, what's the point of writing? What are we doing? You know, like the world's falling apart. And and I thought, I looked over to my, at my husband at some point and it was, you know, we were all on lockdown because of the riots and the protests. And there was like flashbangs in the distance and it was just crazy. And I thought looking at him, oh, we do it because we have this, like humans have this hope and desire for connection and love. Like that's really kind of the only thing that keeps us going. And so that was what I decided would be my sort of happy ending was just that theme running through it. Like what is love and how do people, how does it change? And and what does it, you know, why do we keep, having hope for it. Um, and so my advice to writers is if your intention is one thing, don't let it s- sort of keep you from ch- sort of shifting that intention a little bit. Like if your idea was always that you're going to write a book about this one incident in your life, but the characters aren't letting that happen, right? I could not for the life of me make this book have a happy ending, <laughs> although I tried. Um, <laughs> It's, I mean, it has an ambivalent ending is what I'll say. Um, but, you know, you, if I had forced that, I don't think it would have been as good of, of a book. So when you're writing the book, just be true to your characters and the story. And, and that's all you can do, really. Everything else after that is, is just window dressing. Mm. That's great advice to end on, Liska. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming on. No. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. Yes, thank you. That was Liska Jacobs, author of The Pink Hotel. Music and sound editing are by Travis Barrett. If you want to know more about the show or you'd like to reach out to my co-host, Marie Stone, Travis Barrett, or me, email penonfire at earthlink.net. Thank you for listening to Writers on Writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. See you next time. Mm -hmm.